will be reading verses 4 through 12. And as we read, please remember we're reading God's word. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. You may have a seat. Thanks. Well, we're continuing our study here of the book of 1 Peter. Uh, Peter was one of the core apostles of Jesus Christ, and he writes this letter to Christians that are scattered through uh, throughout what would be modern-day Turkey. Uh, we're finally really getting into chapter 2 here. It feels like we've been working through chapter 1 for quite a while, and we've seen some incredible things. Uh, Peter starts off talking about how incredible salvation is. He says, in light of this amazing salvation that's so great the angels even can't get enough of looking into it, live holy lives, live obedient lives. And then we looked last week at the, what that specifically means is that we're to love one another. Uh, that's what it says in chapter uh, 1, verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Uh, put away the, the envy and the malice and the deceit and the slander and the hypocrisy. Uh, long for God, and that's what Peter has told us. But today we dig into um, a, a, a new, and it's a big idea. It's a big idea about who we are. And it strikes me, and you, you can probably finish this uh, sentence, Go big or go home. Right? We've heard that phrase, go big or go home. And, and I think guys especially kind of like, yeah, go big or go home. Like, yeah, I, want, I don't want to just sort of chip away at something. I want to go big. And it strikes me in, in this political season right now to watch the campaigns and uh, whatever your perspective is on it, whatever side of the aisle you find yourself on, uh, both sides seem to be incredibly frustrated that neither candidate is going big. It's just small ball all around. There's a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but no one has a, a really comprehensive plan for how, the, how jobs are going to be created or, or how the debt's going to be reduced or how immigration is going to be reformed. I mean, nobody has big ideas, and it's a frustrating thing for people on both sides. We, we want a big idea. And as I look around Christianity, as I look around Christians, I see a lot of small ball. You know, God, I, I don't expect anything big. 
don't really want anything big. I just, I, you know, I, I want to I wanna cope a little better with the pain I'm going through. Or I want a little bit of moral improvement. Or I'd like a little better situation for my family. And my, I want my kids to grow up kind of stable. And, but, 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 like, where's the desire to have a big life-altering, window-rattling relationship with God. A lot of Christians just don't seem to have that. And as a result, we tend to look to the people in culture just as frazzled and just as anxious and just as worried and just as crushed by life as they are. Even though we say Jesus is our hope to them, it doesn't look like it. They just see a bunch of small balls. And Peter here, remember, he's writing to people who are suffering. We'll actually look at that today. And he's saying in the midst of this, go big. Go big with who you are and go big with what God has called you to do. So here's a sentence that really summarizes what we're going to look at today, uh, if you're taking notes, is, is what this passage is about is that God's persecuted people have a privileged status and a pivotal responsibility. There's a lot of peas there. Kind of cute, huh? God's persecuted people have a privileged status and a pivotal responsibility. That's what we're going to look at today. That's just part one, persecuted people. Part two, privileged status. Part three, pivotal responsibility. That all just comes right here out of this text in 1 Peter. There's a lot here uh, to talk about. It was hard in preparing this to figure out, what do I leave out um, so we'll see if I judge that right. Um, but let's, uh, let's pray together uh, as, we, as we go into God's word. Father, thank you for your scripture. Uh, thank you that it's living and active. Thank you that every word has been breathed out by you. God, give us by your spirit the ears to hear it, the wisdom to understand it, and the will to believe and obey it. God, we pray for that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Well, this, is, this passage it begins talking about God's persecuted people. Uh, we see, it says in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This passage begins saying, you're coming to him. Well, who's him? Well, him is Jesus. It's the Lord that's referred to in verse 3. You've tasted that the Lord Jesus is good. And as you come to him, what is he like? Well, it describes Jesus in verse 4 as a living stone. Living. Jesus is alive. He's a stone. He's a rock. He can be counted on. He's a living stone. But it says here, that, that he's rejected by men, that the nature of Jesus was to be rejected by people. You see an interesting contrast here in this passage. He's rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. We see the same idea in verse 7. Uh, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, Jesus, all throughout his life, and even now that he's resurrected, the way people think of him, is many, to many people, he's rejected. He's, uh, he, the imagery of the stones there is, is, a, is a construction worker ready to build a house. And he's going through the stones to sort of sift out the ones that are acceptable, and he, he comes to the Jesus stone. And he looks at it and goes, 
Yeah, throws it away. But when God goes through that same pile, he gets to the Jesus stone and he goes, make this the cornerstone. Make this the foundation. This is the most important one. Jesus, all throughout his life, was rejected by men, but chosen and precious to God. And one of the themes that we'll see throughout this book of 1 Peter is that we, in that way, are like Jesus. We will often be persecuted. We will often be rejected. We will often be sort of sifted through and people will go, eh, not that impressive. That's a common theme. I want to show you this just a bit in 1 Peter. If you're in uh, 1 Peter 2, uh, look at verse uh, 21 of 1 Peter 2. He writes, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Jesus suffered. You should expect to suffer too. Go to chapter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. You should be expected to suffer for righteousness' sake. That's a that's how Jesus was treated. You should be treated the, the same way. At chapter 4, verse 12, this is perhaps the clearest place. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said in John's gospel that if, if we were hated, if, if he was hated, people would hate us. He says, a servant's not greater than its master. So, so if they hated me, they'll hate you too. There, and there will be times for us as followers of Christ when we will be persecuted. We'll be rejected by men. Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus is this stone of stumbling this stone of stumbling. Look at verse uh, 8. Well, actually, actually let, let's, let's back off. Let, let's go to verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter draws on this idea of Jesus being a living stone from these uh, multiple Old Testament passages quoted here. Verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus is a stone of stumbling. People get to that stone and they often trip over it. Right? If you want to know what Christianity is fundamentally about, it's Jesus. There are lots of things that the scripture tells you to obey, things that God tells you to avoid, and things that God tells you to do. But fundamentally, this is about Jesus. What do you do with the person of Jesus? When you get to him, do you embrace him and, and like God, see him as chosen and precious? Or do you stumble over him and go, eh, let's, he's not very important? I like this quote by Leonard Goppelt, commentator on this, says, Christ is laid across the path of humanity. Just get the word picture here. Christ is laid across the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter with him, each person is changed. One for salvation, another for destruction. One cannot simply step over Jesus to go on about the daily routine and pass him by to build a future. Whoever encounters him is inescapably changed through the encounter. Either one sees and becomes a living stone 
or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ and comes to ruin. And Peter here is saying, listen, Jesus is this living stone. He's this precious stone. And there's a lot of honor that you have because you believe in him. And even though you're persecuted, you're on the right side of this argument. A lot of people don't see him as valuable and don't see him as important. But if you do, you're blessed. That's a good thing. Embrace that. But there's a tricky phrase in this passage. Did you see it? The end of verse 8. Right? What Peter's saying is, listen, a lot of people rejected Jesus, but to God, Jesus was precious. Yeah, to God, Jesus was precious. And, And to you, he's precious. But what about these people that have rejected him? Why? Why are they rejecting him? And what is that about? And at the end of verse 8, it says this. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, um, this is actually a very minor part of Peter's whole discussion. This is not a big deal in in his main point. His main point is rejoice because you see Jesus as the precious cornerstone. Like, and now you're a chosen living stone. You're part of building his temple. You're, you have an incredible status and a wonderful responsibility. So, so that's his main point. That this, but this raises lots of questions for us, doesn't it? Do you see that? They disobey the word as they were destined to do. Right? In our culture, particularly our hyper-individualistic culture, we struggle, in general, with the idea of God's sovereignty. We struggle with the idea of God's reign. We sang that song, God, you reign. We struggle with that idea. And this seems to say, doesn't it, that, that the people who are disobeying the word were destined to do that. Like they had no choice in the matter. Doesn't it sort of sound that way? Getting a lot of blank stares. Do, do, any, do any of you, should I just move on? Because it's not the main point. I'd be happy to move on. We could do a choose-your-own-adventure here. How many of you want to chase the, the bunny down the rabbit trail? Or Does anyone think, like, you just go, oh, okay. Should we talk about it? Okay. All right, we'll talk about it. All right. Now, again, I don't, I don't want to overemphasize this because Peter doesn't overemphasize it, but I do think in our culture we've got to look at this. What does this mean as they were destined to do? Well, there's a couple things that this passage teaches, and then I want to sort of step back a bit and look at how do we understand this idea in light of the entire Scripture. Um, The first thing you need to understand is this. Um, This passage leaves open the possibility of repentance. It leaves open the possibility of repentance. This says they stumble because they disobey the Word. Those are present tense words, meaning they currently are stumbling because they currently are disobeying the Word. Now, get this, the word disobey is not just like, eh, they kind of casually ignore it. It's they rebel. They don't want anything to do with God. So they're currently stumbling over Jesus because they're currently rebellious. They don't want anything to do with him. And so it leaves open the possibility that they, this is as they were destined to do. So at this moment, they were destined to do that. But it's very possible that at some point they could, by God's grace, see Jesus in a new light. And, and turn away from their rebellion, as every other Christian has, right? At, at, at every point, in every person who says they're a follower of Christ, at every one of them at some point was stumbling 
in disobedience. Then by God's grace, we're allowed to experience the, the grace of salvation. So it leaves open that possibility. But as we zoom out and sort of understand what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and and predestination and election. And I, and I just, I always want to pause here and say, I know for some of you, this is an incredible sticking point. Some of you, you just, you're not worried about it. You feel like you've wrestled it through or you just don't care. Others of you, this is a really sort of difficult, angst-building deal. And so I want to be sensitive to that. And, and I want to just tell you, you're not alone in that. And I don't want to preach this in such a way that communicates that if you struggle with this, you're an idiot. Because I don't think that's true. I think the Bible says some things about it, but it doesn't mean we can fully understand it. You got that? So if this raises questions, if you want to talk about it more, uh, I'd welcome any of those conversations and opportunity to do that. But here's what the Bible says about this idea of God uh, perhaps destining people to disobey him. Double predestination or reprobation would be kind of the theological words. Here's what we need to understand. When people disobey God, when people rebel against God, when people, as a result of that, go to hell, it, the, the scripture tells us it always brings God sorrow, never delight. It always breaks his heart. So we see this in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 33. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You get that? I have, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I, 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 don't, I don't delight in this. I don't enjoy this. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? God's heart is that people would turn back, that they would repent. The Apostle Paul shares God's heart. And in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Paul is... is, is concerned here because he realizes that so many of the Jews that he's been sharing the gospel with reject it. And so here's what he says. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I love these Jewish people so much. They're rejecting Christ, and it breaks my heart that if I could, I would trade them. I would be cursed and cut off from Christ so that they could have him. So understand, that's God's heart, and that should be our heart. We should never be people who take pleasure in the death of the wicked, in the wrath of God being poured out on people who rebel. That's not God's heart. That's the first thing you've got to see. It just brings God sorrow, not delight. But you also have to see this. The blame is always in Scripture placed on the individual. right? So these people, in verse 8, are actively rebelling. They are the ones disobeying. They disobey because they want to. Now think about this for a moment. Each of us have our kind of pet sins and uh, the things that we struggle with and the things that we find difficult. Some of it's our mouth, some of it's with our eyes, some of it's uh, with, with our attitude, right? All these different things. Every time every one of us sins, 
Every time every one of us rebels against God, we do it because we want to. Now, you would go, no, but I, but I hate my sin. Yes, but in the moment, you wanted to more than you hated it. Or you wouldn't do it, right? I mean, no one ever sins against their will. You, so, so therefore, you're always ho- held responsible for it. It was always a willing choice. I, every time I've ever lashed out with my mouth and cut somebody down, it was because I wanted to. I don't have the ability to go, well, the devil made me do it, or, well, God made me do it, or even to say, well, you made me do it. No, I just lacked the self-control to speak kind words or to say nothing. So we're personally responsible. We see this in John chapter 3. Jesus uh, says this, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come, this is the key part, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What's the judgment? Why would God pour out his wrath on people who disbelieve, who who reject Christ? Because they loved the darkness rather than the light. They loved their sin more than they loved him. Then finally, and this is ultimately where we have to leave this kind of conversation, is God affirmed, right? So so at this point you're going, okay, now wait a second. Because this this word destined, by the way, I should have mentioned this. This word destined means appointed or placed. It's a a very careful word. So it's actually used here um, in verse 6 where it says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, right? When you lay a cornerstone, it's a very specific definite kind of, it's, it's, it's not random, right? You don't just throw it out there. You, you place it. That's the same word, destined. So you're going, they're destined to disobey. God chooses, like God appoints that, but they're responsible because they want to, but you're right, and you're going, well, but they wouldn't, would they want to if God, right? do, you, do you feel that? So when we come to that tension, here's the ultimately unsatisfying answer that we get. It's in Romans chapter 9. Paul here is talking about this whole thing, that God in his sovereignty elects some to salvation and passes over others. And and he's talking about this whole thing, and and he deals with an objection. He says, you will say to me then, why why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Right, do you get that? Like, well, if this is destined to take place, why would he hold me accountable for that? And Paul's answer is this, verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? His, his answer is, hey, hey, you're man, he's God, zip the lip. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? In other words, God doesn't explain himself. And... and, and that feels a little unsatisfying, doesn't it? Well, how does that work? I think perhaps what God's saying is, 
you wouldn't get it if I explained it to you. So just humble yourself, trust that I'm in charge, and trust that I'm good. And trust that I mean it when I say that my heart is that everyone would turn back. I mean, when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. When 1 Timothy 2 says that God desires that all men would be saved, believe that. Trust that. Trust that that's God's heart. And trust that God, in not saving everyone, is also just and good. All right? So we're all thoroughly dissatisfied with that? Perfect. You're like, I wish I had said I didn't want to go down that road. It's a difficult teaching, but but I don't want to skirt by it. um, Because I know it would come up in some discussion, and now it will probably just cause more discussion. But it's not Peter's main point. So let's get back to that, okay? Let's get back to the main point. Uh, Peter's main idea here was that the persecuted people have a privileged status. And that really is the big idea. We have a privileged status here. It says in verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. The honor. Now, remember, this is a culture, first century here, that's, and, and many uh, Asian and Middle Eastern cultures still function this way today, where the dominant thing that shapes the culture is honor and shame. You do things that are honorable for your family. You would never want to shame your family. Now, think about this for a moment. At this moment, to, to step out, right? At this point, in Peter's writing, Christianity is not a major world religion. You step into this, you're inviting suffering. If you step into Christianity, in all likelihood, you're, you're saying no to the tradition of your family, so, so you're bringing shame, in a sense, on your family. And what Peter says is, no, 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 the honor is for you. There's honor for you. This is the right thing. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose heart. Don't walk away. Stand firm in this truth. The honor is for you. And what's the honor? Well, this passage talks about lots of different things that are an incredible honor. And and a lot of it is shaped in sort of Old Testament imagery, temple imagery, uh, priesthood imagery, that sort of thing. Verse 4 gives us the first thing uh, in terms of our privileged status. We can come to him. Look at the beginning of verse 4. As you come to him. Now we take this for granted that we can go to God at any point and talk to him and pray to him. But, but throughout almost all of the biblical history, it wasn't always that way. You had to go through another mediator. right? Only the priest, could, the high priest, could go into the presence of God once a year. And, and he, Peter's now saying, but you're the holy priesthood now. You have access to God now. You can come to God now. It says this in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, Peter doesn't say this. Well, maybe he does. Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, Jesus has done what all these priests could never do, and in light of that, now you have access. So here's how he continues in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can go now, today, in this moment. You can talk to God. 
You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a pastor. You don't have to go through any other mediator because Jesus, the true mediator, has given his own blood to take away the sin that that the blood of goats and bulls could never do. So come to him. It's a privileged status. Think about a friend of mine who, when he first moved to Arizona, he went to a couple of different churches, and all of them were, were pretty big churches. And he emailed, he was going through some, he had some questions and stuff, and so he emailed, like many people would think to do, emailed the senior pastor of, I think, three or four different churches, all of them three, 4,000 person churches. And uh, only in one case did he get a response back, and that was from Tom Schrader, our preaching pastor at Gilbert. And uh, he was talking about how the, the access he had to, I mean, because he knows this is a busy guy. He's leading a big thing. There's probably a lot of people that want his time. And the fact that he would personally respond to me, not just an auto reply, not, a, not someone else, but hit him. Like that, that was, a, was a privilege. Listen, Jesus is way better than Tom Schrader. Jesus is way better than any other nice, responsive leader. You have access to Jesus. What a privilege. That's the privileged status. You also, here's the second part of your privileged status. You are God's new temple. You're God's new temple. That's the whole point of this stone imagery. It says in verse 5, you yourselves are like living stone. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's saying it used to be that the presence of God would only dwell in the temple. And now, God's building a new temple, and it's each of you. Each of you is a stone that together are building up this community where God's presence inhabits it. What an incredible picture. This is why we need one another. We can't have these sort of rogue stones or there's holes in the wall. We need one another, and, and, and we're being built into the presence, the place where God's presence dwells. But there's a defining characteristic of a temple. You know what it is? You know, we have all these different buildings that we interact with, right? So um, what word comes to your mind when you think of the following buildings? Uh, What word comes to mind when you think of fries? Food, right? What, what, What comes to mind when you think of Harkins? Movies. What comes to yeah, popcorn if you're thinking? What comes to mind when you think of stadium? Sports. If you were to ask somebody in the first century, what comes to your mind when you think of temple? You know what they would have said? Holy. Holy. Right before I go in there, I've got to I've got to cleanse myself from head to toe. And I have to um, th- then present a sacrifice in order to even be able to enter into this presence. Th- this is holy. And so God's people, as, as God's people, as his new temple, God's called us to be holy. God inhabits the, 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 his people as they grow in holiness. Together we form that new temple. We're also, it says, the new Israel. Uh, this is an incredible thing in verse, uh, verse 9. 
this incredible language of the new Israel. In Exodus 19, uh, Moses had, had said this, uh, Now therefore, if you will indeed in obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is who God says the nation of Israel is. And now Peter comes along and he says this in verse 9 to the church. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we're the new Israel. All the promises that were given to Israel are ours in Christ. Now, get, let me just say this as a disclaimer for those of you who study end times. I don't think this means that God has no plan for ethnic national Israel. What I'm saying is right now the promises that God gave to the people of Israel are ours. It says it right here. You're a chosen race. That means you're God's family. You're a royal priesthood. That means you're God's representatives. You're a holy nation. You're God's citizens. And then think about this. You're a people for his own possession. You're God's showcase. I, I was just in Colorado, and um, I've got a buddy who just retired from professional baseball. And he's really cheap in almost every area. But when I got to his house, he said, hey, I want to show you something. And he takes me out to the garage, and in there is this uh, new Mustang Shelby 800 horsepower, you know, whatever. Here's a, here's a treasured possession, right? I mean, like, it's, he's keeping it under a thing right? That makes it where the kids aren't going to run into it with their bike or something, right? And I won't tell you how fast we may or may not have taken it. <laughs> but that's the treasured possession. Listen, when you get to God's house, he says, hey, come here. I want to show you something. Look at my people. That's what that verse says. You're a chosen race. You're his family. You're a royal priesthood. You're his representatives. You're you're a holy nation. You're his citizens, and you're his treasured possession. What a status, right? This is what Peter's trying to say to these people who are experiencing persecution. He's saying, listen, you're blessed. You have an amazing status before God. He's saying this to people without a status. Right? If, you, if you talk to somebody who has always been an outsider ethnically or socioeconomically or based on how they look or a disability or something else, they will always tell you how, how plagued they are by the sense that they don't belong. They don't have a status. We have a status. Privileged one. But it comes, finally, with a pivotal responsibility. See, when we talk about the doctrines of grace, that we are saved by sheer grace. Uh, God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He has provided what we need in Jesus. Um, he has saved us truly. That should absolutely lead us to go, oh God, you're wonderful. I, I thank you for that. But it also comes with a pivotal responsibility, right? God says in Deuteronomy 5 that he didn't choose Israel because they were great. He didn't choose Israel because they were more populous. He chose them actually because they were weaker. And he says, listen, you're now to go be a light to the nations. And so we too have a pivotal responsibility. 
Look at verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why are we that? Why do we have that status? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Your whole function is to proclaim, to, to speak of God's excellencies. Right? And the more you get to know God and the more you get to know his, his beauty and his truth and his power and his sovereignty and his grace, the more of his excellencies you know, the more you're able to proclaim them. That's why you're here. That's why God has left you here, to proclaim his excellencies, to speak of his excellencies. Many of you do this all the time. Someone gives you a compliment about something and you say, listen, it's not me, it's God's grace in me. Or someone comes to you and they say, why, you know, your family just seems like something different about you guys. You don't go, well, thanks. You go, you know what? Before, before I had Jesus, everything was all out of whack. Let me tell you about it. That's why we are here. That's the responsibility we have to proclaim God's excellencies. And, and it's not overhyped. Right? I also went to the circus uh, the other day, which, weird. I was cool as a kid. It's just weird now. Um, <laughs> right, but they, they had this thing where if you've ever been to the circus, perhaps you've seen the big steel ball, and they get like 100 motorcyclists in there, right? And they drive around. Any of you know what I'm talking about? It's this thing. They just, it's crazy. It's actually like eight people in this tiny little, little deal. And, and the, the ringmaster's saying, now, in a never-before-seen thing, we've got, and it's like, never-before-seen, except for when you were in Milwaukee last week, right? Like, it's just all this overhype. Listen, we, you can't overhype God. His excellencies are far greater than you could ever imagine. So the responsibility we have is, is first to proclaim his excellencies, but it's more than that. It also means that we need to communicate with our lives that he's excellent. He says this in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There are these desires you have to fulfill yourself and to live for yourself, to live for your comfort and your power and your influence and for you. And he says, abstain from that. Turn away from that. You have all the status you need from God. You don't need it from anyone else. So, so turn away from trying to build yourself up through these other means. Abstain from that. And he says, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He's saying the very thing that God will use to help these people who currently are stumbling in their rebellion against God, what he's going to use is you proclaiming his excellencies and living honorably, conducting yourself honorably among people even who disagree with you. Giving the opportunity for you to show that God is great. See, I wonder if part of the reason why so many Christians are hesitant to say anything about God, to share the gospel, to, to talk about the good news of God, I wonder if part of the reason might be that they know their life is a fraud. So God here says, 
No, you're going through a lot, but you have a privileged status and a pivotal responsibility. Listen, we're called to do something big. We're not called to just a little moral improvement here and a little help with that there. We're called and we have the privilege and the responsibility to make the glory of God known everywhere he sends us. And he's given us everything we need to do that. It's a great privilege, a great responsibility. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you love us. God, I pray um, for those right now who um, are struggling to believe that they are who you say they are. They're overwhelmed by their own sin. They're overwhelmed by the, the lies and the accusations that people have told them for years and years. God, I pray that they could hear from you that through Christ, through trusting Christ, they are your treasured possession. Lord, I pray for that. And I thank you in Jesus' great name. Amen. And well, we are going to um, take some time now and respond to that. And uh, we're going to do communion like we do almost every week. But we're going to do it a little differently. We did this a few weeks ago. We're going to actually ask you to stay seated. Um, and we're going to pass the elements to you.